I know what you're thinking, punk. You're thinking, did he fire six shots or only five? Now, to tell you the truth, I forgot myself and all this excitement. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and will blow your head clean off, you could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Welcome to Filmstrip, featuring Rod. It'll be my word against yours. And Jay. I got to know. These podcasts will be spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Ron. And this is our review of Magnum Force, starring Clint Eastwood, Hal Holbrook, Mitchell Ryan, David Soule, Robert Burick, Tim Matheson, Kip Nevin, and Felton Perry. Directed by Ted Post, released in 1973 on a budget of five to six million dollars, made over 44 million at the box office. The longest of the Dirty Harry series of films, a little over two hours. This one comes in at. And co-scripted by John Milius, who we talked about did a bit of an uncredited rewrite in the last one and wrote this, was going to direct it, but uh, ended up directing a, a Dillinger movie, and Michael Cimino came in and did some script rewrites, and he was going to direct it until, if you know anything about Cimino's films and how much they spiral completely out of control and become, you know, $40 million epics in, in a time when nobody spent that on movies, and uh, so he was replaced before they wound up with, with Post, but I think you hit me up on, on a text when we were we were both watching this with uh man this one is just totally sleazy isn't it yeah it it, it doesn't take long for dirty harry to become like canon level sleazy i think that uh the presence of uh michael cimino i think that's why it's the longest of the series <laughs> yep i would agree i bet there's probably a five-hour version of the script because millie says none of the big action scenes like the car chase and the big thing of the aircraft gear at the end none of that was in his script he said it was very simple it was let's put together a group of cops that are worse than dirty harry and then he has to go after them you know the vigilante justice stuff and it was a lot of gun porn because uh, Milius is really into guns, and he, so he wrote all of the shooting sequences, and they were going to do shooting practice, and all all that stuff is him. But uh, Chimino wrote the extended uh, action scenes, apparently. Well, I mean, that makes sense. The John Milius version of this movie would be like 85 minutes of murdering. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Violent murder <laughs> with guns. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I love his movies. So you know they, they are. You know, one day we're gonna have to do the old Red Dawn and then do the the remake that he had nothing to do with, um, because the the compare and contrast doesn't just end there. But uh, but yeah, that's another one of those that uh, '80s murder <laughs> or '70s and '80s murder. I think John Millis was your guy. But but no, this was you know it's a big Eastwood thing too because he wanted to do another one and and Millis had come up with this script and he liked the idea and. You you know, liked the theme of the film, and uh, you know, it was was totally down for all of this. And um, as a matter of fact, I think Eastwood is the reason that we get the moment with the the Asian that comes on to him and he winds up sleeping with her because apparently that was like an inside joke that he got a lot of fan mail from Asian women when he shot in you know California, and they were always wanting to sleep with him. And so <laughs> apparently they they took lines out of the love letters and just gave them all to that poor actress to do. <laughs> so in the three scenes she's in. 
<laughs> I was wondering why that made no sense. Yeah, it is It is the non-sequitur of a two-hour movie. But, well, you know, again, it is the longest one. But and, and for the time, I think we should mention, too, nowadays, like, your big-budget action films, they all run, you know, two, two-and-a-half hours, right? I mean, all these movies are, are clipping right at two hours. Nowadays, hour 45 is your average action film. But for the 70s, that was a long time, you know, um, but you know, movies stayed in theaters longer too. They didn't do six week runs. They did six and eight month runs. So when people paid, you know, four bucks or whatever it was at the time to go to the the, you know, the late show or whatever, they wanted to get something out of it. And so this was, uh, they gave they got the bang for their buck per se. Yeah, uh, two hours and four minutes is a is a long middle feature for your drive-in movie theater. Yes, indeed it indeed it is. I think before we get any more into this though, and before we can really dissect the uh, the slice of seventy sleeves that we've got here, do give us a plot summary if you would, Ron. What is Magnum Force all about? A vigilante group has targeted notorious criminals for extermination, while Detective Dirty Harry Callahan is. No friend of criminals, he is dead set against wholesale murder as a solution to legal loopholes, which seems like a big shift from the first movie. Yes, it is. (laughs) Discovering that all the killings have been committed by the same weapon, a three fifty seven Magnum, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, Colt uh, Python, yes. Yes. Callahan reaches the conclusion that his on-the-edge partner, Charlie McCoy, is responsible. But the answer is actually four rookie highway patrolmen who are at the behest of Lieutenant Briggs, Harry's boss, who we may mention is Hal Holbrook. Yes, everybody's grandfather. (laughs) Yes, Mark Twain himself. Yes. After a chase and a shootout near a shipyard, Harry kills the three vigilante cops but can't finish off Briggs. The LT threatens to run Callahan out for the killings, but Harry slips a bomb in his car that explodes as he drives away. Callahan leaves us with this sage advice. A man's got to know his limitations. As credits roll. <laughs> it's only about the fourth time he says it. <laughs> Two. Um, yeah. That's a good way to summarize this. I think there's a lot to get into. And uh, the first of it is, and you hit on it in the plot summary, Ron, is what's the difference between Callahan and the four highway patrolmen here? That's the central question, right? Is that That's what they're dealing with, is if you have this cop that, let's pick up where we last left Harry Callahan. He quit, right? Like, he threw his badge in the river, figuring, eh, they're not going to let me come back anyway. But as it turns out, nope, he's still a, an inspector. That was the surprise to me because I I remember you know when I when I went to watch these films and finally watch them all in sequence you know years ago I remember thinking wait a minute why is he still a cop <laughs> I thought he quit after the last movie yeah that's a great question why I think because he needed something to differentiate himself from Death Wish at this point because by this time uh, no Death Wish comes next year yeah it doesn't it yeah I think you're anyway. right anyway. Yeah. Anyway, I think he needed something to, uh, he needed a loophole to not become, like, the true, like, anti-hero. He needed some sort of veneer of, uh, respectability. Plus, I think with a guy like Dirty Harry, he needs a system to rebel against. Otherwise, he's just Harry. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, otherwise he's just this jerk that takes matters in his own hands. This time, he's not even the jerkiest cop on the force. Like, he's got a heart to him this time around. He's nice to his partner. He's, you know, he's not nearly as sarcastic to him as he was the last one. And he's, you know, he picks up with the Asian girl that we talked about. And, and, like, Briggs is a huge jerk. (laughs) That's the thing that gets me is, you want to watch Hal Holbrook in a way that you've never seen him before? I mean, he's been the bad guy. He was kind of the bad guy in the creep show part he was in and if you've seen Fletch Lives he's the bad guy in that spoiler alert but you know he's still in that kind of wholesome bad guy way but like in this movie he's a he's an ass I mean he's a he curses all the time and he's always he's, he's the uh, typical captain that's pissed off at Harry you know it's like it's like watching your uh, your grandfather get drunk and go on a really racist tirade like, yes not he's just... also yeah <laughs> Not not just like you know standard old people racist, but I mean like super racist, because it's really unsettling to watch him just curse so much and pull a gun on uh, Clint Eastwood and uh, generally just behave like a monster. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's a he's a seventies monster. I think that's a great way of saying it. And but the the vigilante cops, the the four uh, patrolmen, and I think it's neat. We we laid these out. I mean, early screen appearances at David Soul, you know, goes on to become the. Uh, what Hutch and Starsky and Hutch? Matter of fact, I think he got that gig because of this movie. Um, you've got Tim Matheson, who will forever be Otter from Animal House for me, or you know, Mister uh, what's his name uh, in Fletch, uh, uh, the guy that hires Fletch to kill him. You know, he's, he's oh he, yeah, uh, Alan Stanwyck. He's either Stanwyck or Otter, you know, or or the guy in Buried Alive. If you want to go that deep in, in his oeuvre, but you know, he's that. And then you've got um, uh, Robert Urich. I mean, Spencer for hire, and then some redheaded dude who I've never heard of before or since, Kip Nevin. So, you know, I don't, I don't know what his deal was, but you got those four. You got Mitch Ryan, who I, you know, I know from uh, being in Halloween six and a lot of other, you know, crazy movies. He's a, a bit part in. He's, he was also general McAllister and uh, lethal weapon. If you remember that and had, has had a good character actor career, but this is one of his kind of wild roles. And I mean, you got a neat cast here. Felton Perry was a, was a great actor. If you've ever seen walking tall, the original one, he's fantastic. Oh yeah. That. And so, I mean, yeah, you, you've got you got a great cast here. It's the one thing that, like, last time I thought, you know, Eastwood was heads and tails above everybody on the screen. There was nobody standing near him. And now they've actually put good actors alongside of him. And I think the way that Eastwood's films always work best when he's paired up against good character actors, no matter what it is. Yeah, I think he really needs somebody to play against or play with, uh, somebody who could force him to elevate his game, I guess. I mean, he, he can be one of those guys who tends to act down. I mean, at, at least just from what I've noticed, like in, in, you know, some of his worst 80s movies, uh, he performs down to the level of his paycheck. Yeah, yeah, very much. I think even in through the 90s and some of the stuff he was doing in the 2000s, I mean, he, you know, sometimes he can just be a real ham and, and phone it in. And then there's other times he's, he's giving a good performance when there's something there, I mean, and something to do and a story to tell. And long before he got into doing overly self-righteous movies, you know, I'll say. And not even as a director, but as an actor, he'd he gotten into that. But, uh, you know, I do, I do like it, though, and I like that we it, it's not explained. I mean, we're sitting here talking about why is Harry still a cop? I guess because, I think you've summed it up well, is that Harry needs a system to rebel against. And he also, this time, he's going to be the one that, like, fights for the system. I think that's one thing I love about 70s cop movies is the cops actually do cop work. 
Like they, they <laughs> examine forensics, they talk to experts, they interview witnesses, they do paperwork. I mean, there's two hours of this movie and they're doing these mundane things for at least 40 minutes of it. Yeah, it was really weird to see Dirty Harry, of all people, like doing detective work. Yeah, I mean, because just the stereotype like is ballistics. That he just, yeah, he walks in and just shoots everybody, right? That's the stereotype. But yeah, he's doing ballistics work and like being smart about it and stuff. That was a that was kind of a pleasant surprise. I, I, I imagine the uh, the the Michael Cimino version is more like uh, like outtakes from Zodiac. <laughs> It'd be like a season of Law and Order all in one movie, probably knowing the way that that guy writes stuff. But yeah, I I like that though. I think it it adds a realism factor that your 70s audience would have demanded from their films. Remember, we got to think back to what people wanted at the time, and I wasn't alive for it, so I'm talking about just from cinema history, what I've studied here and, and seen, people wanted you to explain it, walk them through it, show what this is like, because this is in before the days of, you know, uh, tabloid TV or even, you know, news docu-TV where you learn all this stuff. There wasn't 48 hours and all that kind of stuff. So you didn't know how the procedure worked. You just assumed. And I can imagine that, like, to a 70s audience, like, the idea that you could look at a bullet and figure out what kind of gun fired it would just be mind-blowing, like... Kind of like how the kind of like how the first season of CSI is what made people stop scoffing at like DNA evidence. Yeah, exactly. That it was junk science or something, and all of a sudden it became the thing to do. Yeah. So no, I agree. I think I think that would have blown people's minds, and I think the way that he goes about solving this crime is very it's very real. I mean, it's smart too how he comes up with it, and because uh, I mean, it's no we don't know who which ones are doing it. Though you watch it in retrospect, and it's it's sort of obvious that they tip their hand to these four cops early on. But, you know, you know automatically from the beginning that this guy gets pulled over and, you know, there's some kind of mob trial going on and they pull the guy over and what happens but the cop pulls out the Colt Python and, like, blows the whole car away. And very violently, too. This 70s blood is always amusing to me. Yeah, the bright red paint blood. I liked that it takes the idea of Dirty Harry, this cop that operates outside the system, and applies the Batman formula to it. You know, B- Batman, well, Batman the hero begets Batman the villain, or uh, begets uh, Joker the villain, uh, and it's kind of an escalation of violence as as Batman becomes more of a thing, his adversaries become more of a thing. And I can only imagine Dirty Harry gets in the newspapers criminals are like, well, we got to step up our game and buy off more cops and keep this guy as far away from us as we can, and that in turn leads to these four guys becoming the sons of Batman. Uh, if you've read uh, The Dark Knight Returns, the Frank Miller, how the uh, the vigilante cult of Batman takes off. Exactly. Uh, no, I can only great... imagine that these guys are like the... <laughs> I can only imagine that these guys are like the cult of Dirty Harry. <laughs> No, I think you're right. That's a great point, too, is that the thing that separates Harry from these guys is that one extra step of discernment that he gives all of this. You know, yes, he will pull out his weapon. He'll, you know, he and Briggs have this whole bit early on because you can tell they're at odds with each other. And Briggs is like, you know, I've been a cop for X number of years. I've never had to pull out my weapon once. And Harry's like, oh, well, you got to know your limitations. And, you know, it's the first time he gets to use that line. And he keeps on and on with it. And when Briggs finally pulls a gun on him, like, you sure you know how to do that? You know? And, <laughs> yeah, that was and, a funny line. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's great. 
but you know, and, and all I got from that was Dirty Harry doing the Eminem to Will Smith. You don't have to cuss in your rap to sell records. Well, f you. <laughs> you know, I do. So it's <laughs> it's kind of that same basic idea. And but I, you know, I like that. I like that that Harry says, yeah, you know, I'm not out there just shooting the streets up. This ain't the Wild West, even though that's what y'all think. But if somebody gets out of line and they're they're a problem, I'm gonna take them out. You know, that that's his rule of thumb. And, and we already know, you know, the Scorpio killer was using the system against them. You know, the mayor and the, the chief were not, were playing his game and Harry was like, screw this and just went and jumped on the bus and shot the guy. I mean, that's, you know, and, and while people don't like that, it performed a public service, if you will. Like there was something involved in that. And there's a political undertone to this film that I think was, maybe it wasn't as strong in the last one. I think I, I attribute a lot of this to Milius and just, you know, how he is very, you know, conservative and, uh, arch conservative and you know second amendment and guns and you know you you call your own nuts in society kind of person uh, that's just how he is and you see that come in here because they talk about you know the even the cops when they're giving excuses to harry leon it's like what are you going to do you're going to let him go through this system with all these liberal judges and all this and i was like geez y'all thought that was that way in the 70s you couldn't get a load of the day you know that's how you feel <laughs> okay. about then you know wow i'm you know I'd, I'd love to see what you thought of now but that's the difference and harry even lays it out it's like yeah well you know what you know if i have to perform the role of executioner it's not because i enjoy killing people it's because that's the last resort you know as opposed to these guys who are like well, let's just skip all that and get to the end yeah and and let's differentiate here uh the guy harry killed was a person who had already killed like dozens of people yes yeah it was a menace not, to society yeah yeah not just a menace to other organized criminals yeah well yeah and let's talk about the people that these guys take out they kill a they kill you know the the mob boss and his whole crew they kill another one at the house i think suzanne summers gets shot in that too um <laughs> an early role oh, yeah, for her yeah. yeah she was the i think she was the topless one uh and uh you know they, they shoot that up and then they kill the pimp that uh pours the drano down the ladies uh, throat, which you talk about sleaze. <laughs> I mean, that whole scene. Oh, yeah. That was... It's like she's putting money in places you don't want to know it is. And then the pimp comes and gets his pimp hand on. And, you know, like I said, and then all of a sudden he gets shot because he's trying to bribe, he tries to bribe one of the cops and get shot 20 ways to Sunday. And I mean, th these guys are not, they're not killing innocent people that may have done something wrong. These are clearly criminals that have skirted the law for whatever reason, but the, the difference between them and the you know, what Callahan does is he goes about it as part of an investigation. These guys, at the behest of Briggs, just supersede the whole system. That's the difference, right? Yeah, and I think that's a crucial difference. Dirty Harry decides uh, who lives and who dies. Uh, he's not the lapdog of his superiors. And I think that's that's one of the reasons why that they're ordered that it's it's a it's important that Briggs is taking these impressionable, fresh out of the academy guys uh, rather than something like Dirty Harry because he knows Dirty Harry's not going to play ball with basically whatever Briggs decides. Dirty Harry's going to do the opposite. Yeah, he knows that. Even Harry's partner, he knows. You know, look, this guy, even this guy's not going to listen to me. I, I can't trust. Uh, 
early, you know, to, to do what I'm saying either. I, I've got to go with guys that are impressionable. And while they're rookie cops, they're all military guys. They're airborne rangers. You know, they, they've had training. So they would also be susceptible to the idea of someone giving them orders. And you, you yeah, follow this the is very much. Yeah. It, it's weird that a guy like John Milius would be against the militarization of the police. Uh, I, I mean, maybe I'm reading between the lines uh, with what you said about them all being, you know, ex-military, whatever, and the way our current police, uh, you know, basically recruits from the military and gets their their weapons f- and equipment from the military. Uh, it seems like a weirdly prescient uh, screed against uh, the, you know, heavily armed tank cop or whatever. No, I... From I, a guy that, that, that wouldn't be like... That seems more like a, a, a Michael Cimino uh, thing well, than John honest, Milius thing. Honestly, I think that may be the influence there. I think what Milius had were four vigilante cops that were beyond even Dirty Harry's violence, and then Cimino added in the layers uh, for there. That's from what I've been able to read and get. And Milius has never done anything to like discredit it. I mean, he's, he likes this movie, he likes the way it turned out, and was happy with what they did with his script. You know, so he he didn't care, but uh, he's one of those guys too that once he you know, lets go of something, he just kind of lets it. You know, you do what you want with it because he had a lot of things going on at the time too. So um, I don't think he was hurting for work, but that is an interesting no. layer. And and I, well, I will I will credit that to Chimino because that's the kind of thing he would build into characters where Milius's are cardboard cutouts to shoot at each other in them for lack of a better way of saying it chimino's guys would would have reason behind it and uh particularly i think that the thing is and it's not a a bad play by producers to think that there's more that david soul could do as an actor clearly he had you know something as davis that was really it was menacing but it was also it was kind of a young eastwood type thing i mean he's a he's a good parallel to to clint that's a yeah, that's a great observation. I, I I just noticed that even with the helmet on and the shades on, he was still like attention capturing. There was something uh, about him, the way that he you know swaggered. I guess yeah, the, the way other he carried himself. I think the, that's the one thing the other chips here, or whatever, don't necessarily have. They don't really come off as menacing. I guess Robert Urich kind of does because he's tall. And things, and he doesn't get a lot of lines, but uh, David Soul has a look on his face with those silver glasses. I won't say that James, uh, uh, what's his name? James Cameron. There we go. James Cameron didn't rip that off for part of Terminator 2 when Robert Patrick is the motorcycle cop. I, I got a lot of that when I was watching this. I was like, ah, I knew I'd seen that somewhere before. And it's I did it too, yes. Yeah. I knew exactly where you were going. And that's a, I mean, that seems like the kind of thing Jim Cameron would steal. Exactly, yeah. It's, it's, it's his era. It's been when he would have been working with Corman and watching this kind of stuff, right? You know, they would have been doing, you know, Nasty Carl <laughs> or whatever their their Dirty Harry was for made for seven dollars. But um, but anyway, I I do like the uh, the the three or the four cops. I, I say three. The redheaded one gets like no nothing. Like he does nothing for me at all. He gets karate chopped to death, and that's just kind of the end of him. The other ones, the ones that have all the lines. And stuff and so I pay more attention to them but the other thing I love about this and this is another thing of 70s movies is you got to give a red herring if you're, if you're going to do a good movie like this and you're going to blow it from the beginning that well it's cops that are killing the criminals and we don't know which cops you give us one to chase that's 
oh, well, it's obviously got to be Charlie McCoy. And you send Dirty Harry on that goose chase. And I I credit a lot of the effectiveness of that for the way Mitch Ryan plays it. He plays unhinged really well. Yeah, he really does. I I kept expecting a misdirect uh, of the Magnum Force onto Dirty Harry. I kept expecting them to throw him under the bus because there's a whole section where they're talking about, uh, you know, how Dirty Harry uses a special kind of ammunition, uh, a different load than your average 44 Magnum. Uh, and I kept saying, oh, that's going to come back in some way. And it, and it didn't come back, but it was also, you know, A, it was good gun porn for John Milius, and B, it was uh, kind of a... For me, it worked as like a whole movie misdirect because I kept waiting for, all right, now Briggs is going to try to wrap it back around and say Dirty Harry's the guy doing it because we already know he's like uh, shoot first, ask questions never kind of cop. But they never – they resisted that urge. Yeah, they did, and I, I, I don't know if that's part of what gets cut, you know, in, in when you start trimming a film down from Tamino length to, you know, Ted Post length and, and Eastwood length, because I think Eastwood had a lot to do with how this was done, and he and Post, you know, had a long, old relationship. Matter of fact, word is they argued quite a bit on the set, too, so I, I that's probably why you see Post again on one of these, but... Um, yeah, but I mean, you know, Eastwood at this point is coming into his own as a filmmaker too, and he's got opinions about it, and he knows what he's wanting to do, and so they're having a lot of balance between, like you say, Milius gun porn and uh, good information, and I think that the way I take all that ballistic stuff with with Harry is that that makes it believable that he would be able to to run the ballistics test because the first time we see that done, it's done by a lab scientist. You know, so your average cop maybe wouldn't know how to do that. Well, Harry knows enough about guns and weapons to know, hey, I can figure out some, some basic stuff by pulling that slug out of the um, the wood that he misfires on, which, which is a great move, too, we, we can talk about. But, no, I think, I think this movie is very tight. Like, everything in it sets itself up for something later. And, I mean, they play the whole Charlie McCoy thing up, even to the point of, like, you know, you meet his latest ex, Harry goes over and has dinner with her, plays around with the kids they go to bed and she like comes on to him in the the most obvious possible way (laughs) other than coming out saying take your clothes off you know i mean it was almost like uh, the wedding singer when she's like if you come upstairs you're gonna get laid i mean she pretty well said that to him (laughs) which yeah which is it's also really unsettling to see that this guy uh that see dirty harry as a romantic lead yeah, there is a push here, and I want to say this may be Eastwood stroking his own ego, forgive the pun, there, that he, he wanted people to think of him as a 70s sex symbol. I think he was obsessed with that for a short time in his career. Because we've got to remember, he's like 43 at this point you know, in this movie, or 45 almost, I think, with some of it shot. And he's still doing all his own stunts, and he's trying to be super macho guy, but not, you know, he's not the typical 70s male. He doesn't have long, flowy hair and wear, you know, gold medallions. God, can you imagine right, he, that? Uh, <laughs> yeah. he, he doesn't have the Starsky, uh, Starsky hair. <laughs> exactly, yes. Even Hal Holbrook looks like shaggy next to Clint Eastwood. He, yeah. Eastwood's hair is pretty sizable, but, you know. I think Holbrook has, like, the quaff. That's, it's just sitting, you know, on top of his head. A lot of, a lot of Aquanet to make that gray and salt and pepper work there. But, uh, yeah, you know, I don't know. I, I found it interesting. You know, the last time, I, a lot of times I felt like the violence in the last movie 
seemed to be there to just show how menacing uh, Scorpio was, right? Like, just to, to keep proving how bad a guy he really was. And things, this one, all of it seemed to serve a, a larger purpose, in my opinion. Like, there there seemed to be something more to it than just violence for violence's sake. Like, there's, I mean, there's an incredible amount of violence in this movie. I mean, a lot of people get killed. There's a lot of death. I mean, it's, it's, there's, it is definitely the, the concert that was part of the controversy of this movie, particularly the way people get killed. I mean, the drain cleaner, you know, killing the prostitute. Apparently, they ripped that right from the headlines, and that a lot of people were like really ticked off about that that they would put something like that in this movie because it's so. I mean, you could look at it and go, "Well, that's a great idea." I mean, if you're a psycho, you know, you can go, "Oh, well, I know, I thought of that," you know, and I thought, "What an what an awful way to die!" And the fact that it goes on like it's not just him opening the bottle; it's all two minutes of her gurgling it. Yeah, it's it's really it's really rough to watch. Uh, it's really unsettling because I kept waiting for one of the, I kept waiting for one of the cops to come in, uh, one of the the vigilantes to come in and shoot the guy and save her. Yeah, yeah, and what you find out is that he shoots him later, but because of this, but not at the same time. Yeah, I was waiting on that too, or Harry to drive up and do because I was like going, what this is the, and I don't know if you noticed or not, it's the same actor that he he did the whole gun point at with after the uh, bank robbery scene in the first movie, the whole did I fire five times or six bit the first time he runs that line, it's the same guy. So uh, oh, I did not know that. Yeah, apparently he makes appearances in all first four of these as different people. So it's kind of like the Andy Griffith effect, but with a criminal. So <laughs> I don't know if he's friends with he, he, Eastwood or what, but yeah. He's a bank robber, a pimp, a pimp bank robber, and a bank robbing pimp. Exactly. Yes, he's a pimp number four. You know, actually, I think one time he plays cops. <laughs> but uh, we'll we'll get there. But no, I I don't know. I I thought um, I think the violence though, as unsettling as it is to watch, it it does add. I think it gives you pause for a minute to go. Well, wait a minute. Maybe I want these people taken out. But what you realize the cost of that is, is that you essentially assign all of the civil liberties that you're afforded as an American to have a, a trial by jury and to have your day in court and to have your moment. If somebody decides, if a, if a random lieutenant decides, well, you got to go, then you go and you get no chance at all. That's the difference, right? Yeah. Dirty Harry at least gives the system a chance to fail. Right. Yeah, exactly. And when it does, then he goes and shoots you. These people just blow you away, you know, without even thinking about it. So, uh, well, in in the first case, the first gangster uh, that gets killed, he get off on a technicality. Uh, I, I I feel that the pimp uh, did not even receive a trial. No, I mean he he tried to do a hundred dollar uh, handshake to the cop for pulling him over in his tripped out Cadillac or whatever he had. He got blown away, and then you know you got all these other people. The one that gets you, and, and you know we've already talked about Charlie McCoy being the the decoy, if you will, for a while. When he gets shot in the uh, the apartment shootout or whatever, that that's when you know you think, oh wow, you know it's it this thing's getting out of control and Harry doesn't even know he's been killed. Cause he, he finally reveals to Briggs what he's been working on is I think Charlie McCoy's behind all of this. And Briggs is the one that's telling moron. He got shot today, you know, and you can see the look on Harry's face. Like, well, how can I be wrong about this? And I think that's another thing that I will credit this film for is often the hero cop is never wrong about anything. Right. Riggs and Murtaugh are never wrong, but dirty Harry was wrong. Right. No. I, yeah. And that's that's a really uh, that's really kind of a clever wrinkle there, uh, one of many 
uh, things aside from him being a love interest and uh, him being on, yeah, him being pro the system or at least pro letting giving the system a chance uh, this time around. Uh, it was it, that was really an interesting thing, and I don't think you could even see that much today. You don't get a lot of the hero being wrong or making the wrong choice. Uh, you may get a little bit of the will he do this thing or won't he do this thing just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in uh, kind of thing. But you don't see a lot of, well, I just, I must have screwed that up. Yeah, yeah, you never see those guys like really realize that they've, they've just messed it up. Like even when Riggs and Murta on Lethal Weapon, since I threw them out there, you know, even when they get captured by the Shadow Company guys, they still feel like, you still feel like they're in full control. They're going to get out of it. Like there's there's no time when they go, ah, we, we, should have, we should have done that ambush a little differently. You know, it's like, well, no, we'll just we'll just do some crazy karate and shoot the club up and then we're, we're back. You know, that's how that goes. And I enjoy that movie. I mean, you might listen to the review with, with Nick. I, I like Lethal Weapon. It's fine, you know, but this movie just works on a different level. And I think the, 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 me, my, the best scene in the film is the, the gun, uh, shootout competition with the cops. And it's not even like a pivotal scene of, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything to resolve the plot other than you see Harry do something really sneaky. He is trying to figure out who's, you know, doing this killing, these people that are doing this shooting know what they're doing. He knows these cops use these, you know, cult pythons. So he throws, I was going to ask you, does he throw the competition or for an excuse to shoot that guy's gun or did he legitimately get beat? That's the first thing. I think he definitely throws the competition. Cause yeah, I mean, I, he, I, he loses cause he shoots a civilian basically. Right. Yeah. No, he shoots a cop. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. He shoots a cop. That's right. Yeah. I, I think he was, a, he deliberately lost it on purpose. Uh, number one, I don't think Clint Eastwood would let Dirty Harry lose a shooting competition uh, uh, by any means. And B, I think it's also kind of a message that he knows that cops are involved. I think he's he knows that everybody's going to be there to watch the big shoot-off, and he wants them to know that he's got suspicions. That's how I read it. Because he deliberately shoots the cop between the eyes. That's pretty pretty interesting. I I didn't even think of it like that, but that's a great way to to read it. And, and now I'm, I'm wanting to go back and watch it and see, you know look at it from that lens because the, it comes down to a shoot off between him and Davis at uh, Hutch, and Hutch gets six out of six or twelve out of twelve, whatever it is, and then Harry you know gets eleven out of twelve because he shoots the cop. And, the, and when I say shoots the cop, it's the cardboard stand up. I should clarify that, I guess. But yeah, he just turns and shoots David Soul exactly right in the face <laughs> into the movie. But, yeah, exactly. But no, but at, right after that, he said, "Hey, can I have a run with your gun?" And he you know, gets the python and runs six of them, but he misses one, and he misses one into the door jam. And he talks about that got away from me a little bit. You get used to it, you know. They have this whole back and forth, and. Then later that night, Harry comes back out of the range and he digs that round out of the the door because he's they've got ballistics from the pimp shoot, right? That That's how he matches all this up and figures it out. That was another great bit of police work. I thought that is fantastic detective work there for, for a movie that is, is gun porn and is, you know, uh, take, you know, stuff in your own hands kind of uh, justice or whatever, private justice. But then you see this guy doing the guy who is the most anti-system cop doing the most systematic cop stuff. Yeah, it's 
that's really that's really a clever thing. Uh, and I thought it was it was done convincingly enough. I think um, that we believe that they believe Dirty Harry just missed. I mean, like he, it's kind of an unstated acknowledgement of well, I'm not as young as I used to be. Uh, you know, on on uh, Dirty Harry's behalf. And it's kind of a convincing, you know, sure, I'm 45 or however old he's supposed to be. I don't, I'm not sure what age he's supposed to be because Clint Eastwood has always kind of looked middle-aged until he got old. Exactly, uh, yeah. But it's like a, an acknowledgement of, well, these guys are the, the young up-and-comers. Uh, you know, maybe it's time to write. Yeah, can't win them all, right? You know, but then in the next, you know, the, in two scenes later, or, or <laughs> no limitations, yeah. But two scenes before, he's like, you know, banging the twenty-year-old Asian, you know, in his apartment complex, and that really leads to two other pivotal scenes because at this point he's starting to figure out what's going on, and he meets the Death Squad, as it were, in the uh, uh, underground parking bit. And I love the the lines with him. It's like, what are you going to do after you kill you know dozen people? Kill dozen more. You know, and, and and he's like, what? And then it's, you know, you're either one of us or you're against us. And I love he gives them a line. He gives a great line. It's, hey, I think you've misjudged me, or I'm afraid you've misjudged me. And then they drive off. And from then, you know, it's like, okay, now it's a it's it's on between Harry and these four guys. Because at this point, we don't know Briggs is behind it all yet. Um, right. It could still be. Uh, just these four dudes. Exactly. So the the conspiracy hasn't completely unraveled yet for us. And that's the next bit is that Harry comes home and through, I, I can't remember exactly how it goes down, but he figures out that there may be something going on. There may be a, a trip, a, tra- a trap waiting for him. He discovers a bomb left in his mailbox. He saves the girl, the you know Asian girl and a, you know, a, a nosy neighbor or whatever and he's able to disarm the bomb take it upstairs and he's trying to call his partner he calls Briggs and tells him and he doesn't get to early quick enough and that's the thing I didn't remember about this film I forgot that his partner dies and I mean in a terrible way he's coming home with groceries and eating a stick of celery and opens his mailbox and kaboom yeah what a terrible last meal I know, celery. right? Yeah, yeah. You I mean, I mean, and, and I then... like celery, but don't if you're. It's going to be my last meal. Put some peanut butter in it or something. Something. Give me a little ranch with it. At least not raw celery as I get shrapnel to the face. I mean, but uh, what a violent end though, too. You know, and I love how Briggs comes over to meet him and you know tells him I found this, and he doesn't even tell him what's up. And this is when Briggs reveals himself to Callahan because he says, "Hey, will you drive?" And then he says, he pulls the gun on him, and and that's what he lets him know. I'm the one behind all of this. And they have a great conversation in the car, too. It's because Briggs says something to him that you never would expect Briggs to say. This whole movie has been set up around Briggs can't stand Callahan. Can't stand him. You know, he's put him on these different people. You do what I tell you to do, you bum, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he says to him, you're a great cop. You had a chance to be on the, our side, but nope, you just chose it your way. You stuck with the system. And I thought that was a great set of lines that Briggs acknowledges a bit of admiration for Callahan. Do you think, and this is kind of going to be a dig, do you think that Briggs saw 
Callahan in action and said, we need more of that. I, I think he knew already. I think he just knew it would be hard to convince him until he had enough evidence or maybe took out enough people that Harry would have been against. I mean, that's that's how a lot of this goes down, because we didn't even talk about the huge shootout at the the pier or whatever, right? Where, the, you know, they go in and uh, one of the one of the cops, uh, Otter, gets shot through the door and then they have this whole gun battle with the uh, uh, mob there and everybody gets shot out and Callahan realizes this was a setup. Because, you know, not only have they, they tried to, you know, shoot me to death now they're trying to bomb me to death so he knows there's something else going on it's not just the four cops at that point and then he starts to put it together after Briggs lets him know you know hey I'm the guy and that's do you think that's why Callahan asked for the kids I uh, it, yeah as his backup it's like well, if anybody's going to get shot, it's going to be Starsky and Otter. <laughs> well, I think he, he wants to see if they're really going to set me up. Are they just going to have these guys turn on me with the mob? Or how's, how's this going to work? Or maybe I'll catch him in their own you know bit. And I think there's also part of him that in some way still respects these guys and is trying to salvage them. The way he couldn't save his friend Charlie McCoy, who, while, wasn't he, while he wasn't committing crimes, was cracking up and losing it. And and saying really crazy stuff, you know, hoods can get away with everything, just burn them all and let God sort them out, you know, that kind of thing. And he was like, eh, that's why he was worried about him. So <clears throat> I think he, he in some ways is trying to save these guys as much as he can. Be, by, like, being a good example? I think so, yeah. I think he's trying to turn them from the dark side to the light, if you will. Uh, to be way, way pre-Star Wars. But I, I think that's what he's trying to do, is turn him over. And then he realizes that that's not going to happen because the whole thing was a setup anyway. And so he's just trying to figure out who's behind it. And that, that also reveals to him, too, I believe, that he knows that it's not just these guys in on it because they could have never set something like that up. You know, he he knew that they were tipped off, and they were tipped off because Briggs let them know. You know, that's, that's what he... It reveals is like you're the one that called him in because those two guys yeah. and those two guys didn't have a chance. Yeah, to- yeah, they would have never. I mean, you know, Briggs told the mob guys hiding out there that hey, they're coming. You know, and that's why they they went guns blazing because the cops didn't do anything. They're just trying to they're trying to serve an, an arrest warrant. It's what Otter's doing when he gets blasted through the door with a shotgun. You know, he's just talking. He didn't even have his gun out. So, <laughs> also, I was amazed that it wasn't. Um- the redheaded guy that gets shot. Yeah, that's me too. Because again, he didn't have a lot of lines. His sweet had a lot of lines, and then they they just shoot him, <laughs> and uh, and he's gone. But I think that that also, again, I think it's it's pretty clear early that Davis is the one you're supposed to pay attention to. You know, he he gets all the real screen time, and again, he's the last one that you know Harry will show down with because he's he's already been proven to be the equal to Harry because he beat him in the competition. I mean, he was at least close enough to have tied him as it was. If Harry didn't throw it, who knows? Maybe he does beat him. You know, he's he's a good shot. We know that, so. Yeah, even uh, even they, they set that up very early in the movie as well, uh, even with uh, talking about the uh, range time. Yeah, exactly. That's the other thing. The reason they, they when they killed Sweet, it surprised me, was he was the one that could shoot the forty four as good as Harry. The other guys were like, no, nah, I don't want any of that. But Sweet was, you know, could handle the, the Magnum, which was kind of interesting. But as it is, Harry's driving along with Briggs. And I love how he, how he takes out Hal Holbrook. He essentially just starts wrecking the car. <laughs> he's like, well, screw it, you know. And and he, he uses a bit of knowledge that he's got, which is accurate. Briggs isn't lying. He doesn't pull his gun out. He's never used it like that. 
you know, before. And so he's he's not as on guard as he should be. So when Harry swerves one time, he didn't pull the trigger. He, he drops the gun. And that's how he's able to bash him in the head and throw him out of the car as they go to the, the graveyard of ships or whatever. Now, why do you think a career desk warmer like Briggs would be the guy to go for the vigilante justice? Do you think it's because uh, Dirty Harry is a street cop uh, was had more to do with cleaning up San Francisco than he ever did, and this was like his way of giving back to the city. Is there some kind of altruism? Maybe it's because it's Hal Holbrook. I want to see some <laughs> positive thing behind his megalomania. I think what he saw when Harry took out Scorpio was, huh? Now, if we could just do that with the the thugs on you know in this city that we can't really do anything with legally, that'd be great. But you can't have anybody as high profile as an inspector. You can't have a detective doing this crap because that looks bad. I'll get four rookies that are good shots, that are militaristic, that that think like me. And there's a deleted scene on the DVD that is. Uh, Callahan reading some policeman's quarterly or whatever, and it's articles written by these guys about how the system is failing us and we need more cops to take matters in their hands and stuff. That's another way he figures out it's them, and they cut it because it seemed like it was too much um, at the time. And, you know, again, this movie's long enough. It doesn't need to be longer. So, so I, yeah, and I can see that. But it, it's that same thing. I think Briggs sees an option, but he doesn't like Callahan because that's too public. You know, but if it's, you know, how would you ever know it was uh, uniformed officers? There's no witnesses to these crimes. You know, Callahan's the one that figures that out. When these things happen, they happen in stops along roadsides when people aren't looking or they're, you know, they're not in things when people would notice anything. And and really, what's more anonymous than a guy wearing a helmet and sunglasses? Exactly. And I also think Briggs, too, knows if it's cops doing it, he can control the ballistics in investigations, too. Because you know that he can keep that under wraps if it ever comes to it. I think he feels like this is his way of controlling it, and as a dex jockey, this is his political way of handling it. You know, and, and in the same light, while this is going down, he can send cops like Callahan and you know Early and some of the other cops that Harry works with here on you know wild goose chases that either one take them out or just waste their time so that they don't you know stumble across his four hitmen, as it were. That's 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 all good thoughts. That's really, uh, I think we've put way more thought into this movie than anyone involved in. This I, I think movie I did. just wrote a college paper for somebody. <laughs> if, if you want yeah. one, there, just just go with. It. If you're in a sociology class, come right ahead. Just just source me correctly. So <laughs> that's, that's all I ask. Just get the URL. Cr- just get the URL UR, on the podcast, right? That's all I care. All you criminal justice majors. <laughs> Hey, I was one of those for a semester. So, <laughs> but anyway, we do get the final showdown at the uh, the old aircraft carrier that's basically being decommissioned and stuff. And I I love this as a set piece, but I because you have to have somewhere to have a chase, right? Because this is where this all comes down to. And I like how Callahan takes these guys out. They're all on motorcycles chasing him. I didn't realize it was Spencer for hire that he killed when he ran over him first until. It was the redhead and Davis still chasing him through the the rest of the aircraft carrier. It could have just been anybody, but that was a great action scene. I mean, he basically finally gets around the guy. The guy's chasing him, shooting at him, and he finally gets ahead enough to turn around and play chicken with him and just runs him over with the car, which is pretty violent. Especially by uh, you know seventy standards. That's oh, yeah, big time. That but that is really a top notch set piece. 
even though it it seems like uh, Ted Post go, goes at his action a completely different way from than uh, what happened in the first movie. You know how the soundtrack would cut out and you would just hear that kind of naturalistic like panting for breath and chase sounds. You now you you still continue to get the score, uh, which and it's a great score by the way. It's another great uh, Lalo Schifrin uh, bullet kind of funky 70s score. Yeah, that wah guitar. You know, you've got all that going in the background and the thump and, yeah, the bass and all that. Yeah, I'm with you. It, it has an era, but it when I hear it, I'm thinking chase scene in a 70s cop movie. You know, it just it feels as kinetic as the scene is supposed to. Yeah, it's it, it really works uh, well together, I think. Uh, and that's a really interesting scene because it's like, this is like the precursor to parkour. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of running and bouncing off the walls. And the the other thing, too, and you, you tell the difference between Davis and any of these other cops, particularly Red, is Red is just firing shots off in every direction. You know, I mean, he's shooting at anything that moves. He can be shooting at rats for all he knows. He doesn't know if it's Harry or not. And I kept waiting for it because it, it, Harry has been unarmed. That's the thing we should mention is that, the, you know, the man whose opening scene is his hand with the forty four Magnum giving us that line about how it's the most powerful handgun in the world again. And he doesn't even have it on him. It's been thrown out of the window. So he's got to beat these guys without the gun. I thought that was an interesting choice. Apparently that is not the milliest choice, by the way. Well, of course not. It's why would it be the Millie's choice? <laughs> yeah. If you can have a gun and you don't, what's that's clearly the opposite of what John Millie's want to do. But yeah, that is interesting because it's like it's like in Spider-Man if Spider when like in the Amazing Spider-Man 2 when his little web shooter gets electrocuted and he's down like the thing that he does, he's forced to rely on other ways to uh, overcome the situation. Right. Yeah. When when Batman's gadgets fail or, or whatever. Yeah. It's kind yeah. of uh, it's kind of like the all right. Let's take away Dirty Harry's one advantage, and it, it kind of harkens back to the some of the themes for the rest of this movie, where he's like a legitimate detective. He's not just a guy who shoots stuff, and here he is like thinking on his feet and uh, you know tricking. Uh, uh, tricking Davis and showing off his hand-to-hand skills, you know, it's, he still is the hero, but he is forced to accomplish uh, his heroism in a different way. Oh, yeah, he's got to go about it. I mean, he, he basically corners Red and starts hitting him and then karate chops his neck till he, he basically breaks his neck and breaks his airway and he, he strangles to death. Essentially, which is a real like ninja way of killing somebody, and I'm like, man, I mean, if you needed more reason to think <laughs> Dirty Harry was pretty badass, this is this is giving it to you. But I like it though because it's it shows you this guy is not just the 44 Magnum, he's not just the gun, he is a killing machine just by himself. He can he can outsmart them as well as outgun them. And that's and that's an interesting because I. I in the first movie, I don't remember him doing a lot of uh, thinking. No, I mean, there, really, there wasn't. It was a lot of standing on open wounds and yelling at people to tell me where she is. And I think that's a lot of what he did with Scorpio, and then he, he and, shot and, run, and running around the city. Exactly, yeah. And in this case, he's being smart. He's being savvy. And the, the thing that gets me, though, and I will say this about the ending, and it's the part that, I mean, I even asked my wife to watch it again with me, watch the ending of it with me. It, 
he and Davis get to chasing each other on these motorcycles, and Harry essentially gets up on the top deck and lays his bike down, and Davis doesn't you know stop quick enough and runs over the cliff. And, and runs off the ship and into the water. And I asked my wife, I was like, is that far enough of a fall to kill you? Because he just sort of floats to the top. And I'm like, he didn't shoot him. He didn't hit him with a brick. But how did he die from a 30-foot fall? If it's that tall. I mean, I don't even know how high that is. But Even if it's like a 50-foot fall, it's probably a survivable, survivable fall unless he like went head first. He and could he, probably and break he his did, neck head first. He didn't. The guy does an excellent cannonball into the uh, into the Pacific. Oh, in that case, it was a <laughs> uh, a, a fatal case of uh, belly flop. <laughs> Something, yeah. I mean, it's it is. I, I lay that probably on the effect. The effect guy, the, the stunt man, was probably like, "I ain't going head first into that," you know, because <laughs> this wasn't CGI. I mean, he had somebody had to drive off the end of the thing. So, I don't know. I this the only it's the part of it that well, I'm like, "How did he die?" He kill him, um, but Davis floats to the top, and he's he's doing the dead man's float. So that's how you know he's dead, and that that's the end of the four crew. But we still remember, you know, where's Briggs? I, we're supposed to forget about him because for 15 minutes, for all we know, he's passed out on the side of the road. Well, I mean, he's old enough that he probably needed a nap. I don't even know how old Holbrook was when this is made. He may not have been much older than Eastwood. They're they're not that much older than one another, I don't think. So uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. Somebody could correct me on that on Facebook if I'm if I'm wrong. But I I don't uh, I don't know. I don't know how how old he was. But he does show up in the last scene to pull the gun on Harry, and you think he's going to shoot him. And I love that he does the the classic Bond villain thing. I could kill you now, which would be really convenient. I could probably get away with it, considering I've gotten away with 40 murders so far. But I'm going to run you in for killing four cops, because that'll be more satisfying. Hal Holbrook is only five years older than Clint Eastwood. Really? Wow. That is... Okay, that's good to know. So, Well, he's he's five years dumber, too, because he should have shot him. I mean, this is, this is dumb, right? He's like, no, shoot him. You can figure it out later. You figured all this other crap out. Yeah, <laughs> How are you I gonna... mean, you're, you're, he's highly placed enough that he could probably put the blame on one of the dead cops. Yeah, wouldn't be Cle- that hard. Clearly, it's... Uh... Astrachan's fault. He's the redheaded guy. <laughs> exactly. He's the one that was firing bullets everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's got enough gun residue to last. So. Uh, but no, but I love how Harry, you know, realizes he's still got the bomb in the car, you know, and so he sets the timer on it, throws it in the back seat, and lets Holbrook drive off to be, you know, obliterated 20 seconds later. Yeah. Uh, that was uh, kind of anticlimactic. It is, I think. yeah. I, I was going to say that, and I'm glad you said it first. I felt like the end of this, to have been as action-pumping as it was, was very anticlimactic. Yeah, I mean, you want to see him get shot. Yeah. If you if you want to see anybody get shot, it would have to be him. Actually, I, I'm okay with the bomb end if he had gotten into a gun battle with Davis at the end and had shot him off of some setup from that policeman's you know tournament thing. Like, if he had tricked him into shooting the wrong thing and then, you know, turned around the corner and shot him or done the mirror trick or something like that, that would have mm-hmm. been satisfying to me because Davis needed to get shot. That, that was the point. Is that, that needed to be, you know, on the, the scene where they, they're in the – it's high noon and we're drawing guns. That needed to be that. And maybe that's why they didn't do it. Maybe Eastwood refused to do that again after having done it, you know, for years. But that would have been the most logical end of, you know, Dirty Harry versus Officer Davis. 
Yeah, and it would have been the most the the most satisfying end is uh, a man's got to know his limitations, but one of my limitations isn't being able to outgun you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because that would have satisfied that whole turn. And for all I know, maybe that was the ending that Milius had. I don't know what it was, but the bomb would have worked after that. But after the we karate chop somebody and then somebody takes a swan dive, it does seem kind of like that's it, and then it ends on that and some funky '70s songs. Well, Ron, I think we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to get final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for Magnum Force? Well, um, I have to say, as the the first of what I can only assume is going to be prog- progressively sleazier, uh, Dirty Harry movies, uh, I have to say it was still really entertaining. Uh, it does it does feel its speed at some points. It's very much a. It very much feels like a uh, mid to late uh, mid seventies flick, in that it, it is paced a little bit slower than you would expect a modern action movie to be paced. But again, like in the first one, when they do decide to throw down and have an action sequence, it's still a very satisfying action sequence, even you know until the end when uh, it kind of peters out with a massive explosion, if such a thing is possible. Of uh, <laughs> but uh you know it's a good performance it's a great cast i mean there there's a lot of surprisingly good character actors in this i i loved seeing hal holbrook as a straight up monster bad guy uh, and i'm going to have to give it a large popcorn because it's it's just really enjoyable to see dirty harry facing people who do the same thing he does essentially I have always called this the existential Dirty Harry, because it is the one that asks that question. What's the difference? You know, and forces Harry to come up with an answer. And you get that answer. You get it spoken and you get it acted out. The weakest part of this is the last five minutes of the film, the resolve of it. It's not what I would want. I think we both have written better versions of it here tonight, but or here on this podcast. But all in all, it's still a really enjoyable thing to watch. Even as violent and as disturbing as this movie can be, there's a lot to enjoy here, particularly if you like good action movies, you like crime drama kind of films and stuff. Go back and enjoy this one. This may be one you missed, but it's worth revisiting. The actors in this make this great. Felton Perry's incredible as Early Smith. Actually, I'll argue up until the very last film, probably the best partner they ever put Harry with was Early. And it was a great you know, uh, sidekick, if you will. Early is a great sidekick, and it's it's a nice it's a nice change from uh, his partner in the first movie, I think. Yeah, who was kind of a weasel and a bookworm and didn't really want to be there. You can see Early was a cop, and this is all he ever wanted to do. I mean, they even have dialogue about that together, which I think is great. But I I really enjoy this film. I have a good time with it, and even the faults of the ending, I think it's good and it's worth watching. And I'm gonna give it an extra large popcorn. I think it holds up just as good as the other one. And that's the thing that's is surprising to me about anything is this movie's, you know, 48 years old or 30. How many do my math? Thirty-eight years. This movie's nearly forty years old at the time we're recording this podcast, and it's still that's longer. That's forty-two years old. Jeez, I can't do math anymore. This movie's over forty years old at the time we're recording this podcast, and it's still really fresh and really fun. So uh, extra large for me. I really enjoyed this one and enjoyed talking about it with you, folks. We've got three more episodes in our Dirty Harry retrospective, and you can of course find those on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com. 
Click the link for the podcast you're looking for. The Art of Slang will take you to the Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective. Squared Circle Flashbacks will take you to Brian's uh, wrestling review podcast of the uh, pay-per-views of on the WWE Network of years gone by. And you can also link to the Thabish Factor, of course, for Filmstrip, the movie podcast. All kinds of stuff on Filmstrip. I mean, jeepers. We've done the Tales from the Crypt series. We've done some Chuck Norris action movies, some Golden Globus garbage. We've done uh, some, some horror movies like Halloween and Hellraiser. And we've done sci-fi stuff like Alien and uh, all kinds of things. We've even done some rom-coms in there, folks. If you want to go listen to Pretty Woman and Sense and Sensibility, and uh, even if that's a rom-com, I guess. Now, <laughs> so or classics, whatever you want to call it. We, we've done a little bit of all of it here, so we appreciate your support. Please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think of the show. Hook up with us on Twitter and Facebook, and let us know your thoughts on this review and any of the others. We always appreciate interacting with you. Until next time, for Ron, I'm Jay. Know your limitations, and thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17. 